Price Pritchett is chairman of a Dallas-based consulting and publishing firm, and he tells about wandering around the square in downtown Santa Fe on one Saturday afternoon. You may have been there. He came upon a sidewalk display of T-shirts in front of a souvenir shop. The T-shirt that grabbed his attention was black with big words printed on it, Carpe Manana. <laughs> he broke out laughing just like we did. And then he bought the T-shirt. You know, instead of the Latin phrase, Carpe Diem, seize the day, the Spanish word was substituted. And Pritchett saw that play on words as very fitting for the tempo and mindset of Santa Fe. Take it easy. Lay back. No rush. Do it tomorrow. Later, Pritchett was preparing for a keynote speech about change when it went off like a bomb in his head. He thought a person should take that advice literally. Seize tomorrow. That kind of orientation serves us best in a world of accelerating change. Pritchett says that with the future coming at us with ever-increasing speed, we need to seize the opportunities now. Let me ask you a question. Can the church seize tomorrow? If the church is the body of Christ, what does the head of the body have to say about that? Jesus came preaching the kingdom. What he got was the church. Does that mean the church is a consolation prize? A distant second best? Or is that just the wrong question? In his book, The World is Flat, Thomas Friedman identified 10 flatteners, such as the fall of the Berlin Wall, Netscape, outsourcing, and seven other flatteners uh, that have connected the entire world. He says these walls have brought about what he calls a triple convergence. Simply put, the convergence means the wall came down, the mall came up, and three billion new players rushed onto the playing field. With all these possibilities, new ways of doing business had to be developed to take advantage of what the technology was making possible. At the same time, the concept of a lone superpower had to give way to the reality of a polycentric economic world, a world in which collaboration makes more sense than competition. Now, this triple convergence was taking place in the framework of what Phyllis Tickle calls a great emergence. That's the title of her book. She refers back to the scientist Thomas Kuhn, who first, back in the early 60s, <clears throat> began talking about paradigm shifts and pointed out that the really great paradigm shifts only happen every four or 500 years. Well, Tickle began to look at major religious shifts and saw the parallels. She pointed out to the 500 years between the incarnation of Christ, uh, Pope Gregory the Great, uh, the Great Schism, 1054, the Reformation, 1517, and now this thing, whatever it is that we're experiencing now, this new emergence. Philip Jenkins 
titled one of his books, The Next Christendom, and that's implying that the old Christendom has crumbled and is receding into history as the new paradigm has been emerging over the past century. For those of us born here in the Northern Hemisphere, we may be asking, where have all the Christians gone? 70% of all believers are non-white, non-English speaking, living in the Southern Hemisphere and the Eastern world. Referred to as the majority world church, they're coming north and west to the mission fields of Europe and the United States. Why should we be surprised? If Jesus started all this, why don't we recognize what is happening? After all, it's a kingdom agenda. Mark said, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. One of my heroes, Bishop Leslie Newbegin, says, that was the announcement of a fact. It was not about religion. It was an announcement of world affairs. Jesus was announcing the reign of God. It is drawn near, so repent. Metanoia, turn around, face the right direction. This is the gospel of the kingdom. But Paul didn't talk about the kingdom much. He just preached a message about Jesus. And Newbegin says about that, the kingdom of God, his kingly rule, now has a human face, a human name, the name and face of Joshua of Nazareth. To go on after this, talking about the kingdom rather than about Jesus, would simply mean one had not heard the message, would mean they probably hadn't done the U-turn. But U-turn people are kingdom people, set-apart people, a pilgrim people. Paul and Jesus were not in conflict. Paul just talked about how the king gave shape and form to the servant that could best serve kingdom's purposes. And Peter said it, as we heard a moment ago, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You're a chosen people, a set-apart nation. Mm. Peter was writing his letter to the pilgrim people, God's elect strangers, in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by, by his blood. There you have it, the church. Not a consolation prize, not a country club with a steeple on it, but the body of Christ sign and agent of the king and God's kingdom, a resident alien community of faith. Peter reminded these missio migrants they were chosen for servants, for service, aliens who settled among the heathen and Pagani to be salt and light. They were not chosen as predetermined elites, heaven-bound, nor to withdraw into holy huddles, grateful that they were not like the outsiders. They were a new humanity, a community of the king. That pattern 
has not changed. That paradigm has not shifted in 2,000 years. Major scientific and religious paradigm shifts may occur every four or 500 years. Trends and fads come and go a lot more quickly than that. When Paul was writing to the Ephesian believers, he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they might understand what great hope God had in them when he called them. My soul, what great hope. And what power was available to them because God appointed the Christ to be head over everything for the church. God's purpose, the Missio Dei, has never changed. That's not because the evil one did not have other designs. While on earth, Jesus told a parable about the weeds that puzzled his disciples. Later, they got with Jesus and said, hey, would you explain that to us? And so Jesus said, well, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one and the enemy, the one who sows them, is the devil. While God's purpose and mission has never changed, the arena in which good seed is growing shifts from one generation to another. You know, the, blend, the wind blows where it will, don't you know? And that seems to be what's happening today in the framework of this great emergence. We know about vibrant churches here in our own country that remain faithful to kingdom business, both Protestant and Catholic. America is still the largest sending country in the world with about 93,000 missionaries working beyond our borders. But now we see more evidence of good seed than ever before in the other continents as well, thanks to a digital cyber age. For instance, we're more aware of the spread of the faith across the African continent, moving from 9 million believers to over 400 million just in the last century alone. Many of their churches reside in an unflat, unconnected part of the world where believers are voiceless and powerless, politically speaking. And in that arena, the good seeds are growing rapidly. Looking beyond themselves, Africans are becoming missio migrants, taking the immigrant church into Europe and North America. African Christians, you know what they call Europe? The dark continent. Some of the largest churches in London, Paris, Amsterdam, and Brussels are African churches. Immigrant African churches are intentionally planting themselves here in the United States. One indigenous African church of Nigeria, headquarters in Greenville, Texas, has an annual camp meeting in East Texas for a week. About 20,000 attend every year. That's just a branch off the mother church in Nigeria. When they meet outside Lagos for their camp meeting, five million attend. The master sower planted a lot of good seeds, known as Western missionaries, over the past 200 years, both in Africa and Asia. The harvest in India is stunning. It is actually the second largest sending nation with about 83,000 missionaries, but the majority of those work inside India cross-culturally 
with over 2,300 unreached people groups in India alone. Korea is the second largest sending nation in the world in terms of missionaries working beyond their own borders. The churches of all denominations now have about 20,000 missionaries working in 150 countries. And refusing to be perennial victims of colonial rule characterized by the marriage of priest and prince, Latin American evangelicals now have over 10,000 missionaries working across the world. The kingdom has come, but not yet, fully. The other half of Jesus' parable deals with the intentions of the evil one since he can't win the war, he will try desperately to take down anyone, any group, any church who can be seduced by any means. Highly destructive weeds are growing rampantly. While spiritual warfare wears many masks, I dare to name just a few that can undermine the work of the church. And these are not the usual issues targeted by some Christians in our country who are always talking about secularization, uh, sins of the flesh, etc. Evil always attaches itself to systems and structures, even denominations. Personification of evil resides in the mind and actions of authoritarian, tyrannical dictators who have no sense of responsibility to the people under their rule. As you and I have seen good seeds of reform being planted in northern Africa and the Middle East over the past couple of months, the weeds of egoistic, power-hungry men grow tall, flexing muscles that command and control. Communities of faith must wear the full armor lest they be seduced. Eliza Griswold calls the 10th parallel a faith-based fault line between Islam and Christianity. Even so, in her book by that title, The 10th Parallel, she states, and she had been traveling between the equator and the 10th parallel, which is 700 miles, over a period of seven years, meeting face-to-face -face with radical Islamic terrorists and with Christian leaders. And here's what she said. Every single religious conflict I saw had a worldly trigger, whether the land, oil, or water, because those groups tend to self-identify along lines of religion even more than ethnicity. As I thought about this, I was reminded... Uh, the land symbolizes identity. Oil symbolizes power. And water is life. While all of these are neutral entities, in the hands of the evil sower, they become the weeds of war. Here in the West, blinded by our own highly scientific technological society, we have pretty well discounted evil spirits and the demonic as mere superstitions held by weak religious people. But even faithful, strong churchgoers have been deluded. The weeds of materialism and consumerism have produced a bumper crop in America. Let me illustrate. 
Any of you have a credit card? The average American credit card debt is $8,500. Christ followers are not exempt from the tantalizing siren call that says, it's okay. You can have it now. Just pay later. And we've taken that mindset into our churches. And there's nothing wrong with providing bigger, more efficient buildings to aid in worship and coaching our members to be salt and light in the marketplace. But too many have said, too many churches have said, it's okay. You can build it now. Just pay for it later. Eight out of every ten churches in America is in debt and the cumulative debt load of these churches, you ready? $38 billion. And as of last week, our national debt tops $14 trillion. With a population of 310 million, that averages out to about $46,000 per person. The only problem is it's growing at $58,000 a second. When moderation is displaced by extremism, we're all in trouble. Socrates said to understand a thing, you must first name it. And I want to tell you the name for what is happening to our political system is corruption, deep, systemic corruption. Bill Moyers pointed out in a recent speech about plutocracy and American democracy that a shadow party has been created that's determined to be the real power in Washington. In the shadow party, the plutocrats rule and reign. A record amount of secret money is flooding our democracy. One of the plutocrats crowed, we're rich, we own America, we got it, God knows how, but we intend to keep it. The god of mammon sees a vast field, fertile for sowing seeds of division and diversion from the mission of God. I'm not just talking economics and politics here. I'm talking about a kingdom issue. At the family, at the personal, the family, the church, the national levels, I'm talking about sin and idolatry. Paul wrote to the churches in Colossae, Laodicea, and Ephesus, warning them of greed, which is idolatry. Oh, people of the pilgrim age, beware the weeds. Our mandate is to love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with the Lord our God. What are we to do about all of this? For this season of your lives... You're in Truett training grounds for your life's work. Your coaches here have an awesome responsibility. We may not be able to take on the whole system, but we can start right here. Theological education must turn its face sunward toward the Son of Man who plants good seeds in the arena of God's world. And in the light of spiritual warfare still raging, figure out how to recalibrate curriculum and practicums to equip servant stewards of the gospel to work in a world like this. 
we won't solve that problem today. Associations like ATS are needed. If, over time, the rigors of rules do not keep us from being sensitive to what the Spirit is saying and equipping men and women to be good stewards of the gospel. We live in a flat, connected world for many, an unflat, unconnected world for many more. As Christ followers, we now realize we also live in a polycentric Christian world. We engage God's mission on six continents. The triple convergence in Christian mission is leading to web-enabled platforms for collaboration. No more mission silos competing with one another. We're now engaging in the horizontalization of missions. Effectiveness in collaborative missioning can only happen with new practices and skills and continued training of stewards who both understand the times, the partners, the priorities, and the goals for which we all strive together. When, I, when we were in language study in Bandung, Indonesia, West Java, our family traveled to Samarang down in central Java to assess what would be our living and working conditions and situation at the seminary. We had been assigned an old beat-up Chevrolet station wagon that we only got access to every third day during language study. You should have seen my family of five on a Vespa scooter. Well, we were driving along, talking, singing, playing car games. When I saw we were approaching a bridge, I pulled over to the side of the road to try to read a big sign that was posted uh, beside the bridge. Uh, we were about halfway through language study. I could read most of the sign, but had to consult a dictionary for some of the words. But I did figure out what the sign said. It read... Jambatan ini sangat dikhawatirkan. This bridge is in serious doubt. Whoa! I looked at the bridge spanning a fast-moving river. I looked back up the road behind me, and finally I saw a truck approaching. So I told my wife, let's just watch this truck and, and see if he tries to go, see if he maneuvers this bridge. And amazingly, the driver inched along, got across, went his way. I said to myself, self, let's wait for another truck. After a while, another one came along, same thing. And when that one safely passed, I dared to guide that old station wagon across the bridge and be on my way to Samarang. I've thought about that many times since. What if some of our churches in America posted a sign on their front lawn reading, this church is in serious doubt. While there may be no physical signs on the lawns, <clears throat> Too many Americans have read us and passed by on the other side. There was not enough evidence to prove we were alive and serving the mission of God. Why would anyone be willing to try us out?
If three billion new players came on the field of Friedman's flat world, those same three billion have always been on God's field. We're learning what this new enlarged playing field means. And the process is needed to take advantage of all. After all, the kingdom has come. That's a fact. And the king still calls to us, follow me. In the spirit of our master and king who leads us on, we respond, carpe manana. Amen.